three days without a news discussion means the news backs up and we have news to discuss on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. Let's dive in. The United States and Ohio have laws about how politicians can use their campaign funds. But do we have evidence here about how lame those laws are? How is State Representative Tom Patton spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in ways that most people would find inappropriate? Lisa. Yeah, Patton, the Republican from Strongsville, has been audited five times since 2013 for questionable spending of campaign contributions. The most recent audit was July of last year, when auditors flagged thousands of dollars in questionable purchases, including tickets for Playhouse Square, United Airlines, shoes at Famous Footwear, Thin Feather and Fur, which is a hunting store, and early expenditures flagged over these several audits have been purchases at the Apple Store, Zoo Lily, car repairs and rentals, gasoline, a lot of dining out. And he has a 20-year history of paying other people with the last name of Patton over $34,000 for what they call parade help. So like in, in parade candy and campaign work. And he's been paying that since 2002 when he took office. So Ohio law prohibits campaign funds for personal use, but they can reimburse themselves for legitimate expenses that are considered reasonable. But what exactly is legitimate is a complex question. According to Ohio Elections Commission Director Phil Richter, he says candidates often push the envelope to see what they can get away with. Now, Patton for himself, he says, look, I've had audits across two different secretaries of state. There are no official allegations of wrongdoing. He says donor money, it's donor money, not taxpayer money. But he did admit to some inadvertent expenses um, at Famous Footwear and at the Apple Store. So Patton's campaign has paid him about $800,000 since 2002 in self-identified reimbursements. That averages about 50 grand a year. The, the, clearly all questionable and clearly audits detected this kind of stuff and asked about it. I, you know, I heard from some readers on this one saying, does this just stop here or does something happen? And it's like, well, it's a Republican supermajority and you don't go against somebody in your own party. I suspect it ends here, even though it should not. The campaign funds are supposed to be used for campaign expenses. It's pretty clear. But the laws are permeable, and it seems like he can do what he's doing without recourse. Well, in the Secretary of State, they have questioned his spending in the past, but they say in a recent statement when we asked them about it, they said that their authority is limited to completeness and accuracy of the campaign finance reports. And they say that these audits are proof of diligent review and warranted no further investigation by the Elections Commission. So make of that what you will. Before gerrymandering, this kind of information would play into a campaign and that would keep candidates honest. I don't believe he has a primary candidate. He, he really can't lose in the general. So he doesn't care. It, what, what, what accountability is there? There is the voters won't hold him accountable because it's gerrymandered and party primaries and all the problems we have with our election system. So there will be nothing. He, there is no accountability. He could do whatever he wants. It's great that Jake laid it all out. It's a phenomenal story by Jake Zuckerman. Uh, and it really does open your eyes to how these things can be used. But I suspect 
there'll be no results out of this. He will get reelected or no, he's running for a new chamber. He'll be elected to the new chamber and all will be well. Well, and I, I, Catherine Turser with Common Cause Ohio used your favorite words, Chris. She said that campaign money is not a slush fund. <laughs> Except when it is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The past week has revealed a remarkable deficiency in state election law that seems to discriminate against transgender candidates. Normally, when deficiencies in the law are uncovered, lawmakers seek to fix them. Layla, is that likely to happen here? Uh, it doesn't seem likely. This this is the law that says that candidates running for office must include on their candidate petitions any names they've used in the past five years. And for transgender candidates, that could include what's known as their dead names. That's the name they used before they transitioned. But as we pointed out, the petition itself does not ask for those prior names. It only has a spot to write the candidate's name. And the 33-page candidate guide also does not note that requirement to list your prior names. But candidates who are transgender have had their petitions rejected because they didn't follow that law. And the candidates are saying the problem here is that no one is aware of this law. In fact, it seems that folks in Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office were unaware of it as well. When a spokeswoman for LaRose was asked whether candidate guides issued in the future would mention this requirement, uh, she said, this will be looked at further if this should be a law we add in next time. And she then noted that the first paragraph of this year's candidate guide warns that it's only a brief summary and not a complete digest of laws and, and would-be candidates would have to con- you know find someone to consult with and that sort of stuff. And, and as for changing the form to make it more clear what the requirement is, the form is set by legislation. So it would require an act of legislation to add the language explaining that requirement to the form or even to add space for people to list prior names. And the Republicans don't want to do that. Senate President Matt Huffman and Ohio Senate GOP spokesman John Fortney last week uh, on their podcast said the blame for the transgender candidates' paperwork problems should be put on the Ohio House Democrats' campaign staff for not catching it beforehand and warning the, the candidates about it. You know, th- I want to stop there because that's really reprehensible. Be- what you're basically saying is party insiders are the only ones that should apply. Yeah. If you're a party outsider trying to change the Democratic Party because you don't like what it's become, the Democratic Party is not going to help you on your form. That's not the way it works. The form, if you have to provide past names, the form has got to have it. Otherwise, holding people accountable for that is just wrong. This is one of the most ludicrous examples of of this I've ever seen. And for Hoffman to say it's the Democratic Party's fault that that the person filling out the form doesn't know that there's invisible boxes they should be filling out Mm -hmm. is ridiculous. It just tells you everything you need to know about Matt Hoffman and his leadership. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, how how would any average person who decides to run for office know about this or have access to the the people within the Democratic Party who would, you know, comb through their petitions to to check for these kinds of things? This is supposed to be a system that that any person can can access. One thing, one note I was curious about is it true, which it says in the story, at least uh, this was attributed to one of the transgender candidates, is it true that for many transgender people, when they change their name, that the name change record is legally sealed by a judge? And if that's true, that should be completely exempt from this requirement, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I I just I want to get back to to Matt Huffman's mindset though. We've talked about how these guys are all loyal to party instead of the people. His statement that it's the Democratic Party should be taking care of these folks is just all the evidence of that. If I want to run for the state house, I don't have to be a party insider to do it. I could right. want to do it out of the goodness of my heart, be dissatisfied with the Democratic candidates that have represented me and go against the party. But he doesn't acknowledge that. He's basically saying the party dictates who gets in. And this is a fallacy of the a failing of the Democratic Party mm-hmm, for not mm-hmm. taking care of its own. An amazing, amazing statement by him. That podcast must be hilarious to listen to at times. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why would Timken Steele want to move away from the iconic name that has been attached to the Canton Company for more than a century? Laura, don't brands matter? Well, I think they do. Usually they want to keep them unless there's something nefarious about them. Like my mind first went to uh, Energy Harbor when it came off from First Energy. But this, you know, Timken is well known in Canton and they are switching to Metallus. It comes from combining metal, but they say metal, metal or allergy. I don't know how to say that word. And qualis, which is the Latin word for quality. They switch February 27th. They say they're extremely proud of the company they built over the past decade. That's when Timken Seal spun off from the original Timken and they want to become independent. But to me, I, I don't I don't really understand that. I guess they're not really a consumer facing brand. Most of the the customers they have are other businesses and maybe in that small little world this doesn't make as big a difference as cocoa puffs or something that you sell to, <laughs> to mom and pop. Right. So they manufacture carbon and alloy steel products from recycled scrap metal and they deal with industrial automotive and aerospace industry. They've got 1,800 people. The vast majority work in Ohio. They also have locations in North Carolina and Mexico. And that, you know, the 1,800 in Ohio, 1,700 are in Canton. So this is a big deal in Canton. But Timken's been around since 1899 and in Canton since 1901. So this is a spinoff of that, but Timken is huge in this area. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Grace Gallucci has been the CEO at Greater Cleveland's huge planning agency, NOACA, for a dozen years, but suddenly is embroiled in controversy. Why did the governing board postpone its plans to renew her contract on Friday? And Lisa, we're going to do a dance here because we do not want to say anything defamatory. Exactly. So, yeah, the the NOACA board voted Friday to delay renewing the contract for executive director and CEO Grace Gallucci. They wanted to look into anonymous allegations in a letter to the board from 22 current and former employees that was obtained by us. Um, they The letter criticized her performance and leadership. Uh, Gallucci says the allegations are false and defamatory, and she says she still hasn't seen a copy of that letter. So at issue is there a is a three-year contract extension on the table at her current salary of $254,600 a year with a potential potential extension of one year through June of 2028. And they're also calling for an independent compensation survey to see if Gallucci is entitled to the raise. Also on Friday, the board approved a resolution to pursue um, the January 5th 
organizational assessment focusing on advocacy, communications, HR, and capacity building. That was a last-minute ad- agenda addition in the executive session of the meeting. It was not described before the vo- board voted, according to Gallucci. So, yeah, a whole lot of craziness going on. Yeah, and I, there's an inside story here that's interesting to discuss. This letter was purportedly signed by 22 current and former NOACA employees, but they all signed it anonymously. It was a bizarre thing. Anonymous signer one, anonymous signer two mm-hmm. through 22. We don't know who they are. We don't know if they're actually current or former employees. And they didn't provide a single piece of evidence, not a document, not an email to back up what are incredibly damaging allegations against Gallucci. So this this was a strange one for us because they they shopped this to journalists all over town. And you got to wonder why. And, you know, is I, I get the feeling there's a cabal trying to weaken or oust Gallucci. She's been there 12 years. She's rubbed some people the wrong way and they're trying to take her out. But we can't do that. We're not transcriptionists. We don't just take a letter and say, oh, 22 people, anonymous people said X. What does she say? That's a tip. You start with an anonymous tip. You start to root it out. We have not obtained anything to back any of it up. And of course, she says it's not. So I wrote a column about this over the weekend explaining why we didn't write the story originally on the letter. And we wrote a very careful story because this is defamatory. I mean, I've spent yeah. a lot of time talking to lawyers. I spent had three conversations with our lawyers on Thursday and Friday. Um, if you run anonymous defamatory material and you can't produce the people that said it, it's like those people don't exist. You lose the libel suit. I mean, it's pretty much a slam dunk. So we're very careful. We don't run defamatory anonymous comments because it's unfair. I was really glad. I heard from a lot of readers that we're grateful to hear how much thought and care we put into stories like this. And the only thing we really know, of course, you guys have seen the letter, but I haven't, but there was a public commenter at the Friday meeting, Katie Moore, and she said she was speaking for those anonymous letter writers. She said that they exhausted all internal processes to raise their concerns. And I think I may have said this back in December, because back in December, the full board voted to table the contract renewal after Chris Ronane wrote a letter to the NOACA chair, John Hammercheck, with concerns it was being rushed with little notice to review the material. And I didn't like it when he said it then. And so, you know, he's looking for clear performance measures. And to me, that sounds like a hit. Well, I, I do appreciate good governance. And, and if you want to review her performance, if you want to do a study of the effectiveness of the organization, okay, that's what a board does. This, though, coming at this very moment when she's weakened, right? The contract's up. There's this anonymous stuff. It just, they shot, look, they shopped it all over town. And we we did the right thing. And that's that's why I'm glad we have at least one strong media presence in the city. Because <laughs> it's not right. It's just not mm-hmm. right to have anonymous spurious allegations get thrown at somebody who's been a public servant. I suspect that when all this is over in six months, the the very people who are behind all of this will be toasting to her success and pretending like it never happened. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see what's next on this one. I, uh, I And we're, we are doing what we do with anonymous tips. We're trying to find if there's anything credible to back any of those allegations up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Israel-Hamas war is not a subject that people who run for city councils in Ohio expect to deal with. 
Layla, how is Cleveland City Council dealing with the public comment section at its Monday night meetings that is dominated by the Israel-Hamas war instead of the issues council members are trying to address here at home? Well, the backdrop here is that council is really under a lot of pressure regarding its its public comment policy. On one hand, you've got this uh, court order that basically rolled back most of the regulations surrounding public comment because of this lawsuit. That stems from an incident during which council president Blaine Griffin cut the mic on someone who was availing himself of the public comment period to list all the council members who had received money from the council leadership fund that Griffin controls. And while council has been mulling over how to set new public comment rules that don't trample free speech, they're also dealing with this very large contingent of pro-Palestinian protesters who've been coming to council chambers basically since October. At first, they wanted Mayor Justin Bibb and Griffin to walk back their comments in support of Israel after Israel started bombing Gaza. But now they're calling for council to pass a resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza now, of course, you know, no one expects that a Cleveland City Council resolution would have any any impact on an overseas war. But the Palestinian group sees it as a show of solidarity and support for a group of Cleveland citizens that have deep ties there. That, of course, would put council in a really tough spot with pro-Israeli constituents. So Griffin has been looking to other cities that have also seen this large contingent of pro-Palestinian protesters to take note of how they're managing this issue. Some city councils have acted on those requests for a ceasefire resolution. Akron, Detroit, Atlanta, and San Francisco have all done that. Similar resolutions appear to be moving forward in other cities like Chicago, Denver, and Minneapolis. And in other places, city councils are steering clear of this question altogether, or they're rejecting such resolutions. In, in other cases, city councils are adjusting their public comment rules. Philadelphia City Council, for example, in October suspended all public comments related to a resolution condemning Hamas and calling for, for peace. So it's it, there's been a, a wide range of responses to this. Griffin told Courtney Astolfi he's not considering Philadelphia's route and he is not considering suspending public comment altogether but he doesn't want to pick sides in this war. He says if representatives from both sides are able to agree on language for a resolution, council would introduce that. But what are the chances of that, right? Well, one, resolutions are useless. When I covered City Hall, we had so many stories to cover. I just ignored them because they have no weight, no meaning whatsoever. But two, and more importantly, what is the purpose of a public comment section? Is it open mic night at City Hall or is it designed, has it been designed in city councils across the country to hear from residents on what specifically the council is working on? So say you want to pass a sign ordinance that says you can't have a sign that sell your house bigger than three by five in your front yard and real estate agents and people want to talk about that before it's ironed out. That That's generally been the purpose. Well, I covered a lot of municipal meetings in my day as a reporter. That's generally what it was for. But there's this feeling now that it's just open mic night. You get that you get to pick up the mic and talk about whatever you want. Is that really what it's supposed to be? Yeah, I mean that that is that is one way you could go with this is to limit public comment to just the issues that are on council's immediate agenda. There are members of council who are very progressive and they object to that being the approach. They don't necessarily think it should be open mic night, 
I don't believe, but maybe they do, but they feel that, you know, how, where do you draw the line as to what is a matter that's before council? Because people are talking to their council members about all sorts of things. You could have an ex parte communication with a council member and isn't that considered a, a matter that council is taking under consideration? So I don't know. Yeah, but it's, but it's not under consideration. I mean, the it meetings isn't. are set with an agenda of items that they're passing. That, that's the purpose of the council meeting is to pass legislation on matters affecting residents with the limited amount of time available, why aren't they just keeping to that? That is the purpose of the meeting, or it was. I, I guess if you're going to redefine the whole thing, it just becomes, it's going to be, what, what, what was that old cable access kind of stuff where anybody could get on cable and, <laughs> and mm-hmm. speak away? That's what this becomes. And how does that further the interest of a city? These guys and city council are trying to get some stuff done. And how does this help that happen? And from what I understand, aren't like the same 10 people signing up for the public comment period? So you were hearing from the same people week after week. Isn't that correct? (laughs) Well, I think that has certainly been the case since the pro-Palestinian group has come. I don't know if it's exactly the same people. I I haven't seen the list, but I know that they pretty much do fill the queue of Mm -hmm. speakers for the night and that that frustrates council members who want to hear people about different issues. You well, know? and it cuts residents off from their government, you know, that really, that have problems like groundhogs or snow plowing or whatever. Sure. They can do what's, what county council does, which is that they don't limit the number of people who can come to the mic. <laughs> but <laughs> That goes on for hours council, sometimes. <laughs> city council members claim all the time that they're very in touch with their constituents. That's why they claim their full-time jobs, that they're hearing from constituents all the time. So this isn't the only window people have to talk to council, which gets back to what is the purpose of this public comment period? Because the purpose of the meeting is to pass legislation. True. But so imagine though that this, you know, what if people decided they wanted to come to City Hall to to get out ahead of a Brown Stadium deal, and they want to flood the pump public comment period with with anti Browns uh, deals, you know, s- sentiment that that would be effective, wouldn't it? Why do they have to wait until that matter is right in front of c- City Council when the deal has already been struck? Be- because that's the way it generally works. The deal isn't completely struck. The deal is proposed. It goes before a long series of council committees, which are open meetings for anybody to come. And then it goes to readings at the city council. Yeah, but I think so that public I think, comment is a time when they can put pressure upon all the forces that are that are you know pouring into that contract you know proposal. You're so, arguing that there isn't. an opportunity for people to be heard on issues Mm -hmm. in Cleveland. And I think given the state of social media and everything else, people have more access to make Mm -hmm. their thoughts known than any time before that Monday night meeting is supposed to get some business done. So you don't think there should be public comment? No. Well, I'm glad I'm not covering city hall public (laughs) comment because that would have been maddening to have the meeting stretch on and on with people doing this. But I, I think, that the the purpose of that meeting is to get legislation passed and move the city forward. So it would make sense to me, and this is my bias from a long time as a reporter, that the comments be about the legislation they're considering. But they'll define it. We'll have to see where it goes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
It took a while for Cuyahoga County officials to get moving on the problem of teens sleeping overnight at the Jane Edna Hunter office building, for lack of anywhere else to go. But officials are moving now. What's the latest news, Layla, on how County Executive Chris Renane plans to proceed? He plans on eventually closing Jane Edna. This is the county office building that, as you said, serves as a, a de facto drop-off point for kids in the care of the, of the Children Family Services Division. And kids sometimes end up staying there, sleeping in the, the day room on blow-up mattresses or what have you for days until they can find a proper placement for them. And they've had so many problems there with kids being assaulted or assaulting others. They leave the building for days on end. You know, Sometimes the kids are are leaving to prostitute themselves. And there have even been reports of older kids prostituting other younger kids who they've recruited from Jane Edna. And so Ronane says his goal is to eventually shift health and human service workers from Jane Edna Hunter to other offices so no one would ever use Jane Edna Hunter again in the future as this front door to drop off kids. But what that would look like and how much that's going to cost is still unknown. The county can't start moving away from the Jane Edna Hunter building until there's a place to more humanely house kids in DCFS care, a project that's also in the early stages, and that's not fully funded. The county set aside $11.8 million to the centers to reserve eight emergency beds at Cleveland Christian Home, but that's not enough to meet demand. So in December, Ronane announced the county had chosen the Cleveland Christian Home again as the site for a child wellness campus which would get, provide physical, mental, and behavioral health services along with beds. And Rodane says the county is about $8 million away from being able to start work on that project. He seems pretty confident the county will be able to afford this in addition to you know the new jail that has to be built, the Justice Center, all the other demands on the county's coffers. It sends a heck of a message if they close that building down, that it's a new day in how we treat children in Cuyahoga County. I was really surprised. It's a bold move if he can pull it off. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio State University has a new study out examining how family size plays into mental illness. Laura, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by these findings. What are they? Well, I was a little bit surprised, but for teenagers, the more siblings you have, the more likely you are to struggle with mental illness. And the study analyzed the mental health of eighth graders in the United States and in China. They took an, a part in a long-term study since kindergarten. And in China, teens with no siblings showed the best mental health. In the U.S., it was kids with one or no siblings, similar mental health. And they expected this because of China's one child policy. But I guess the idea is if you've got a lot of siblings, your parents' attention is divided and there's only so much time to go around. Also, I, you could, especially if you're the younger sibling, it tends to be worse. I guess you're getting picked on a lot by your older siblings. But you'd think that at some point there'd be a balance if you had a large family that it was actually very supportive of each other and you were getting a lot of self-worth from helping to care for other members of the family. But that is not re reflected in these results. Yeah, it does seem like the parental attention gets divided to the point where it affects people. Well, and it was interesting that the closer the siblings were in age, the worse it was. <laughs> yes. My sister and I are 16 months apart, so I thought that was uh, very interesting. Yeah, but it, this... this doesn't get at the quality of sibling relationships and how much that's going to help you later in life. I think this is the kind of study that everybody could have anecdotal information to feed into it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
How bad has the flu and virus season been so far, Lisa? And what is the prediction for the rest of the winter? Yeah, it looks like the three big diseases this winter are like starting to peak. So let's take a look at flu first. There's very high activity in Ohio, but it stayed kind of low here in Cuyahoga County in the last month. Northeast Ohio hospitalizations are down from 2022, and they're not sure why. Is it more people are vaxxed? They really don't know. So the current strain is H1N1, also known as swine flu. They are thinking it'll peak later this month or early February. Still not too late for your flu shot. Most counties have only had one or two flu deaths, but Lake County has had seven. Geauga County has had four, and Summit has three flu deaths so far. COVID has been surging since late October. They expect this to wane right about now. They're saying mid to late January, so we may be on the downswing. It's the JN1 variant that's dominating. That's a new strain. It's not targeted by the current COVID vaccination only 10% of Ohioans have the updated vaccination. It compares to 30% nationwide. Uh, Cuyahoga uh, County is among the highest with 14.7% getting that updated vaccine. RSV, it's a different story this year. Last year, it hit pediatric patients very hard. This year, it's older people who have been hit hard. It's been climbing sharply since October, according to the CDC, because there's no state data on RSV. It's moderately busy in children, but nothing Nothing like last year. And they say that RSV actually peaked in mid-December and they say it should be decreasing in the next few weeks. There is a new vaccination. I got one. It's for people over 60 and also for babies. Yeah, I got it too. I had a, a scare over the weekend. It's anecdotal, but a long ago colleague was like me, never had COVID, got it a couple of weeks ago, spent five days in the hospital, two in the ICU with wow. oxygen being pumped in, just walloped by it. He said he was fully vaccinated. So he's advocating that everybody he knows get back to wearing masks because it's bad out there. That's it for today in Ohio for the Tuesday following the holiday weekend. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Wednesday with another discussion of the news. 